Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And tonight, since it's before Yom Kippur, we're going to discuss some topics that I think will be uh, relevant to uh, preparing for Yom Adin. So that's something that um, all of us can relate to. Uh, Hashem, we'll also get to some of the Kashrus topics a little bit later. But first let me share with you something that's in the Rambam and Hilchus uh, Tshuva, w- which is uh, relevant to all of us, at least as, that's as far as I believe. It seems that the, uh, the Rambam mentions 24 things that prevent a person from doing Tshuva because of the influence it has on him, the difficulty it makes it for him to do Tshuva because of these particular things. There are 24 of them. And one of them is, where he talks about uh, a person that he uh, causes others uh, to uh, not be able to do a mitzvah. To, he could have uh, helped somebody in that area, and he didn't. The lesson of the Rambam is, if a person sees his son going out to uh, wrong ways, we'll say off the derech, etc., and he doesn't stop him, and he could have stopped him, since the son is in his, in his possession, in his control, under his control, at least in the good old days. Ilu Michabo, had he told the son that he opposes what he's doing, it would have influenced the son to, to stop what he was doing. And therefore, it's looked at as if the father caused the son to sin. I don't say that's the situation today. Uh, there's a lot of influence from the street. Uh, parents lose control over their children, not necessarily due to anything wrong that they did. Uh, it's not the topic for tonight. But whatever it is, and it was in a, the good old days, let's say, uh, when you, you, know, you had some control and you could you know, give him a little slap, a little pat in the, a little, uh, patch in the tuchus and get him going, and, and you didn't do it, so you're guilty. The Melech was blamed. But it's definitely something that many fathers do have the ability to prevent. And therefore, that's considered to be a failing on the father's part. Included in this, says the Rambam, is called She'efse biyado limchos ba'cherim bein rabim bein yechidim v'lemichom al yaniach osam b'chishlonon. A person who could have stopped others from doing something wrong, uh, whether it's a small group, individual people, or a large group of people, maybe even the whole world. So then, and he didn't, start, and he didn't stop them, it, it's considered to be that uh, he let them continue to go in their wicked ways, in their wrong ways, and he could have stopped them. He's considered guilty as if he had done these sins himself. And the, uh, they bring down, on the side of my, Rambam, it says it, from Metziun, Mekoris, and Tziunim, it brings down the famous Gemara, which is in... Uh, Daf in Meshabbos, Daf Nun Dalad Mebeis, and it's an interesting Gemara. Uh, has a lot to offer us. The Gemara says the Mishnah actually. The Mishnah says, "Paraso shall Rabbi Elazar ben Azayah hayasa yotza beretzua shabain kranel shalo beretzon chachamim." The Mishnah mentions that a, a cow cannot go out on Shabbos with a strap between its horns. And it seems that the 
the cow of Rebbe Loza ben Azaya was seen, that's how he went out, and it was not uh, to the liking of the Chachamim, which means that the, the, the Mishnah forever and ever and ever is recording that Rebbe Loza ben Azaya did something inappropriate. Now, there's a Gemara, I'm not going to go into it now, where it discusses his ideas, but that's not for today. Based on the Gemara that we have in front of us in Shabbos, the Mishnah seems to look down on Rebbe ben Azaya for doing this thing, or for not doing anything. The Gemara says the following. Gemara asks, this, uh, you're referring to the uh, cow of Rebbe ben Azaya, did he only have one cow? He had, according to the Gemara, he used to take off a tenth of his cows to give away to his miser. You know, the, the miser is not his. He has to go to, uh, to, to the levy. And he took off the te- a tenth of, his, of the miser, and a tenth of his flock every year was 12,000 calves. So you can imagine how many new calves he's getting all the time, how many calves he had, and how... Obviously, um, he was extremely wealthy. Why do you refer to his para, his cow? So the Gemara says it wasn't even his cow. It was his neighbor's cow, a woman. Now, in those days, how, if he had so many cattle, how close could that woman who was a neighbor be living? Uh, an acre away? Ten miles away? I don't know. It's still, it's, she's called his shechena, his neighbor. And he is considered to be guilty for having not rebuked her and stopped her from letting her cow go out that way. Uh, irrespective of what his personal opinion is, but with the, Gemara is, the, the Gemara is assuming that he should have stopped her and didn't stop her, and that's why he is guilty. And it's, to me, a most amazing Gemara. The Gemara goes on, talks about people who could have prevented the larger groups, and they're responsible for all the the people they could have they could have rebuked, whether the household or the city or uh, the whole world. These are the examples the Gemara gives that a person could have an influence to that extent, and he doesn't. That then he's considered to be guilty, and he's punished for their transgressions. The whole world's transgressions, if he could have influenced the whole world, his whole family or his whole town, if he could have influenced them. Very, very strong words in the Gemara. And I was very impressed by this Gemara for several reasons. One is that Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azai is very well known to us. It wasn't wasn't 70 years old. Hey, he was a youngster, and Rabbi Gamliel got in trouble with the other rabbis, and Rabbi Gamliel was being removed, and Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azai, a young man of 18, was being put in his, in his stead as a replacement. And uh, so uh, Gemara says that he was very wealthy. His father was a Talmud Chacham. He had good, he had good, good stock. He himself was a Talmud Chacham. And based upon all his milas, all the qualities he had, Rabbi Gamliel would not be upset that this man is replacing him, even though he's a youngster. He knows that this is a very special Jew. So that's how we always remember from the Seder, and we always talk about Rabbi Elizabeth Isaiah. And uh, we, 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 we venerate him, and he, he is an impressive figure. And yet over here in the Gemara, the Gemara is putting him down and saying that uh, he had uh, a fault, that he didn't rebuke one neighbor wherever she lived about one of her cows. That's the story. Or this Gemara. 
you see how much influence a person could have. I want to tell you a story that I mentioned here on the radio one time, I believe, I believe and it's worth repeating. And then I'm going to get, tell you something that, how it affects you, every one of the people who's listening here to me today. It, it goes back to the, um, the march. When we live in Flatbush, there was a march every year in the spring, usually around May. They didn't want it to be too warm because then people weren't sneers. So they made it in May. That was, that was basically the time we went on the march. And we went on the Shabbos, and it was people from all the shuls in the neighborhood, yeshiva, mir yeshiva, and all the shuls in the neighborhood. We walked on King's Highway. King's Highway had many stores that were open on Shabbos, and this was to have an impact on the Jews who had stores open on Shabbos, many of them with mezuzahs, and they were open selling things on Shabbos. And maybe some of them had to mechira, some this, some that. A lot of them didn't know, and, um, you know, whatever it was, that's what happened. So we would go up and down the block, and it would take um, about an hour to march up King's Highway and then down King's Highway, and every time we'd stop, and there's a little island that they have over there. Uh, it's a tiny little thing. It's called, you can call it an island, but it's a little spot where people could congregate. And somebody would address us. One of the Rabbanim who, was, who had walked together with us would address us. And one year it was with Shmuel Birnbaum. And Shmuel Birnbaum, Rosh Hashiva from Mir Yeshiva, he got up and he talked about how uh, there are people who are not Shomer Shabbos and we have to have a good influence on them. And he mentioned that the Chavot Sayim said, if you don't know all the Hilcha Shabbos well, if you don't learn Hilcha Shabbos well, then you're going to be Mechal Shabbos. Maybe in some small area, but you're going to be Mechal Shabbos. It's not possible that you're going to be a real Shomer Shabbos if you're not learning Hilcha Shabbos all the time. And they, and, and they, they said the famous uh, statement of the Chavot Sayim that if you don't, if we're not Bucky in Hilcha's Beirer, uh, where we are, if a person is not careful about certain particular halachas where we live, then they'll open in Paris, means in other country far away from here, they'll open the stores. Meaning that we have an influence on everybody else. We have to learn Hilcha Shabbos. That was his little speech. And he got down, and next week somebody came up to him in the yeshiva and said, Rebbe, you said last week, we have to learn Hilcha Shabbos every week. When are we starting? Shmuel Birnbaum was not ready for that. And he said, right now. And he said, go get some Mishnah Brewers. And the fellow went, pulled a bunch of Mishnah Brewers off the shelf, sat down, a few people sat down, and they started learning Hilcha Shabbos for about 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, but basically 20 minutes. Every Shabbos for the rest of his life, unless he was sick, Every Shabbos for the rest of his life, it was about 14 years, Rav Shmuel Birnbaum learned Hilcha Shabbos after the davening in Mir Yeshiva. Now, there was a Kiddush every week, uh, not every week, every few weeks in Mir Yeshiva, and sometimes it was with Rosh Yeshiva's own family or somebody, people he was very close with, but he would never come in to the Kiddush until after he had learned the 20 minutes in the yeshiva, after davening. Because that's what he said, and he believed it, and he felt this is his way of learning Hilcha Shabbos, being mechazek, his community, and having an influence on the people who are not yet from. Then, the, a different year, 
Rabbi London, who was well known as the Rabbi called him a Lebedika Sefer Torah. He and his brother, Lebedika Sefer Torah, a living Sefer Torah who was always Makara people and who had Yeshiva, Hechla Torah, the first cure of Yeshiva, probably from our generation. I mean, it was before anything happened in Israel that called Kirov, way, way, way back. When I was a kid growing up, they had already a, a Kirov Yeshiva and transformed many people into from people and uh, kept it up his whole life. And he spoke at the end of the march one year and got up and said, Rabbi say it's beautiful that you took an hour out of your time to walk on King's Highway to influence perhaps some people to close the stores. It's a beautiful thing that you did. But Rabbi out in the neighborhood here in Flatbush, in this general area, there's 3,000 Russians who are living here who are not yet Shomer Shabbos. What are you doing for them? And this is what he said. And then, I'm not going to go through the whole story again, but about five months later, it was September, uh, there was a, a thousand Russians were let out of Russia. Was, in those days, it was unheard of that number, but they got out a thousand Russians and they came, the planes landed in Kennedy Airport. It was written up in the papers, and Rabbi London went down to meet the planes. And he said, I represent the Jews of Brooklyn, which was not true, because Rabbi London didn't represent anybody but Rabbi London, maybe his own family. But he says, I represent the Jews of Brooklyn, and we want you to live with us. So the, the people were in charge of these flights. There were arrangements made where they're going to spend Shabbos, and they, they, they said, no way, they're going to these hotels in Manhattan, uh, like welfare hotels, they'll put them in, and that's where they're going to stay. And Rabbi London went down to the facilities there, and week after week, he invited the people to come to Flatbush to spend Shabbos in Flatbush. In addition, he called them constantly, and he, then he started calling everybody in Flatbush and saying, we're putting up Russians, can you take somebody in your house? Can you? And then the shuls, he had arranged meals. In Rabbi Gornish's shul, Rabbi Gornish's he had three meals every Shabbos for these Russians. For months and months and months. This is what Rabbi London did, set the whole thing up. Amazing. He promised and then he delivered. Tremendous. So eventually, from that, he started two yeshivas, a boy's yeshiva and a girl's yeshiva for these Russian children. And that, that, is, that, that, that became one of the uh, major yeshivas working with Russians, Rabbi London's yeshiva. So we have two approaches to the question that we mentioned about not being guilty of another person's sin. One of them is that uh, you start learning your own Torah, and that has an influence on the non-from people. How it happens? It's something up in Shemayim where people are doing more, careful more. Somehow this one here, that one's more careful. Somehow something goes and spreads out and has an influence, and that's the belief that we had, and that was the, the point that Shmuel Birnbaum was making, that you could take on additional learning in order that it will have an indirect, con indirect uh, impact 
on these people who are not yet from. And the more your intensity will somehow create in the world a spirit that will have an influence on people who are not from, which is a shita. And that's what he, what he expressed. So now people are thinking of what to do before Yom Kippur. So it's a very simple thing. It's very hard to do tshuva for, for all the chatoim that we've done in our lives. Many people get waylaid and don't do anything. And all the svarim and everybody says, take something small. So I'll give you something small. Take and learn anything. Add an additional couple of minutes, 20 minutes, at, uh, once a week. Like, do I remember Rabbi Shmuel Bambam? 20 minutes once a week? Whatever you want. Just add something. And that will have an effect on the world. What the tshuva is that? Tshuva for this sin that we are going around and we are making Shabbos for ourselves, we are living our own lives, and we sort of say, the rest of the world, there are toyim, they're making mistakes, they don't, they're misdirected, they're off the derech, but it's not my fault, it's not my family, it's not anybody I know, <laughs> maybe I heard of somebody one time, but it's not my people. The answer is, if the, Gemaris, uh, the, sorry, the Rambam says that if you could have had an impact and you didn't, so you're guilty. So this removes from us, this is the, the, the Arusha we have from Rosh Hashanah that this removes from us that we don't do anything for the, uh, for the rest of the world. The other approach is what Rabbi London did, which is jump in and tackle it, even though it sounds weird. People you never met, people you don't know anything about, go out and influence them. Now you'll say to me, Rabbi Wickler, for sure, I can't do the second one. And I'm going to tell you, it's not true. If you invested the same amount of time, 20 minutes or a half an hour, once a week, and joined one of the two programs that are out there, Ura Torah Mates, or Partners in Torah, it, the, all they need from you is about 20 minutes, a half an hour, once a week. If they want to, they, they do an hour also. But if you'll give them a half an hour, they'll take you on, and you'll be able to learn with someone who you don't know, and that person will be able to grow. And I'm going to tell you a secret. Those two organizations have people waiting right now, hundreds of people who are thirsty to learn something, and they're looking for people to fill those spots. Right now, there were about, I don't want to say a number, because I didn't really research it for today. But let's use the number 10,000, 10,000 sets of people, which means 20,000 people. I think that's way over the amount that they have now between the two organizations, but it's a number. So let's use the number of 10,000 sets of people learning, which means 20,000 people. Sounds fantastic. Only... Do you know how many Jews are Orthodox living in New York City? I'm not going to go into how many in Lakewood. I know how many in Lakewood also. But in New York City alone, it's possibly over 1.15 million Jews are Orthodox living in New York. Maybe I'm wrong. That's a number I saw. Maybe it's a bad number. Maybe, as somebody once said to me not so long ago, 
there's only one million Jews in America that are Orthodox. I don't know the real number, but it's certainly not 5,000, because there's 5,000 people learning, uh, or 10,000, I'm sorry, not 10,000, which we has a 10,000 sets, that means 20,000 people. So it's not that the Orthodox people who are learning with the people who are not yet Orthodox are, uh, are uh, ten, only 10,000. So, and here you have maybe a million plus that are available, at least across the United States, if not just in New York alone. So we're talking about a potential of converting the rest of the United States of America, having influence on all those that are intermarrying, who are going lost this way, that way. Now, now, now they're going to show up. They're not all going to call Torah Torah mates, and they're not going to call partners in Torah. They're not going to all volunteer. But as people are available, those organizations will get more aggressive in finding those people. So maybe we're not going to do from 10,000 sets. We're not going to go to 100,000 sets or 500,000 sets. We may not make it, but maybe we can go to 20,000 sets, 40,000 people. We could, maybe we could double the impact of Uramates and, Torah and, 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 and partners in Torah. If we doubled that, I'm not saying in a year, but if we doubled it, could you imagine the influence it would have? I, right now, we, there's so many people that are becoming religious through these organizations. Unbelievable how many the uh, Ura effects and, and partners in Torah effect. It's, it's unbelievable. I, I've been involved with them for over 20 years, and uh, I, I've seen many people that I work with uh, grow tremendously. So uh, I, I offer to the two of you, to everybody here, these two organizations, Ura and Partners in Torah. Let me give you their numbers. So the telephone numbers are for Ura Torah Mates. By the way, Ura is spelled O-O-R-A-H. Ura Torah Mates is 877-867-2412. Again, 877-867-2412. And if you have an internet, you just go Ura, O-O-R-A-H. Ura, O-O-R-A-H. And if you want to write Torah Mates, that'll also work. And you'll come up with the information. Um, personally, I like that system for a couple of reasons. One is that you don't have to, you, you can easily use, easily use uh, half an hour a week is enough. And uh, you, can, uh, you can get more hands-on with, a, with a somebody in between, like a go-between between you and the other party. Uh, I've been using that very effectively. Right now, I'm involved in the education of one of the children of this gentleman that I learned with, and uh, the, I found that that person who works between us is extremely helpful, and we're hopefully be successful keeping the girl into the uh, in the yeshiva. Um, now, the other program is Partners in Torah. It's, it's actually the original one, and very good organization. And the easiest way to co- contact them is one one eight hundred. Study four two, study s two t u d y just the way the, the way it sounds s t u d y, look I mean look to look the numbers up, you know and four two, just the numbers four two so it's one eight hundred study four two, and that's how you get a hold of partners in Torah, and um, you can get them on the web also, and it's uh, it's a very good program, 
they, they get fantastically interesting people who are very much want to learn. And sometimes, by the way, it's not always somebody who is a, uh, a Balchuva or somebody who's not on the Balchuva yet. Sometimes it's somebody who has, uh, maybe they have a little bit of a need to get a Chavrusa for some weakness that they have. It's extremely helpful. Now, what do you have to study with these people? Anything they want. Um, and you'll be, you'll be told, you'll be given an, op- an opportunity to decide what you're willing to, to study with them. And sometimes it's just beginning type of thing. Sometimes it's Siddur, sometimes it's Chumash, something else, something else. Uh, depends on the people. Sometimes I have, I've been learning uh, all kinds of different things with these different people. And I, I think it's, it's one of the most ex- in- interesting parts of my life. So I hardly recommend it to everybody, and I think it's a wonderful Kabbalah for the new year. And will have an influence on those other people and takes care of the problem that the, the, that the Rambam spoke about, how we may not be helping the people that we can. The next topic I have is something that's got to do also with Yom Tov, got to do with Shechita, got to do with Sar Balichayim, got to do with the, 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 the minig of Kaparis. And now the minig of Kaparis is something that I spent a lot of time on, and Bar Hashem I see that the Aguda, who set up a program, I was part of it, was an ad hoc committee to work in Kaparis, and we, were, uh, we, we met together and came up with certain wording of a, uh, public, uh, of a public announcement, and we worked on certain things to improve the Kaparis vis-a-vis the way the rest of the world is looking at it. And it's an ongoing process that still needs a lot of work. Uh, I just saw that this year they're using again the Kol Kairi that we came up with um, in 2007. So uh, the, the organization is not, I don't believe there is a, a, this committee anymore where I might have been asked to join again. In any event, uh, the Aguda does put out these announcements, and uh, that's itself very good. But the Kaparis uh, program probably needs additional help. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details now. Uh, that's something we, we, we wrote about many years ago in the Kashmir's magazine. But I want to make you aware of how much effort is being put into counteracting Kaparis using chickens. Personally, I use money. That's how I was, that's the minute of my family, and we, we, we kept it up all these years. But there are many people who use live chickens. And uh, it's, not, uh, it's not one section of the Jewish community, it's across the board. And uh, many, many people have done that with their whole life. So uh, there's, there's different approaches. But to say that you can't do chickens, that is only from the people who, these radicals who are trying to destroy this minute. So here's the card that I got. Um, it's from a very strange city. I have no idea where this is. It's in New Jersey, but I've never heard of it at all. It has a post office box in a city called Bella Mead. Two words, Bella Mead, New Jersey. And it's a postcard, and here's what it says. 
Using chicken, this is not my feelings at all. Using chickens for kaparis violates the Easter against Tsar Balichayim. On the top of this card is a B, Beisamech Dalit, means Besiyata Deshmaya. Like you might write Baruch Hashem on the top, or Beisamech Dalit, BSD, or Beisamech Dalit in Hebrew. That's how they start, meaning they want to identify themselves as from a Jews right away, which probably they're not. But that's neither here nor there. I have no idea who they are. It, it's, there's no real, uh, no, no real name. It just says N-J-A-S-M, whatever that stands for. Najasm, whatever that stands for. It's an anachronism for something. I have no idea what it is. Using chickens for kaparis violates the Easter against Tsar Balichayim. Uh, if you want to know the truth, that their spelling isn't perfect. Okay. An Easter which the Chachomim have taught is Iser Doraisa, Baba Metziah, 32b. Now, that's not a problem, except that most people don't hold that Tsar Balichayim, yeah, so I'm sorry, Tsar Balichayim would be Iser Doraisa. That's good, yeah, I like that, yeah. The practice of slaughtering a rooster for Kaparis must be stopped. And then they quote the Shulchan Aruch, which... They quote, uh, I, in mix, I would say misquote the Shulchan Aruch the following way. And e, uh, the practice of slaughtering a rooster for kaparis must be stopped. Shulchan Aruch, Orachayim, 605.1. Now, that's deceitful. I'll tell you why it's deceitful. Because, first of all, I'm not a Chassid, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Sephardi, and most of the people that are doing this are not Sephardim. I'm not, I don't know how many are Sephardim and how many are not. But uh, here is what the facts are. I'm going to read to you, basically explain what it says in Shulchan Aruch. In Shulchan Aruch, the one day quote, which is 605.1, it starts off with the Mechaber, who was a Sephardi in Eretz Israel in 1567, that which they custom is to do on Erev Yom Kippur, the shechting of this chicken, and you know, and, and do you, you do you do the, the experiences the the, the what, well you see what the chickens having the chicken and it it cathartic for you and do helps you to do tshuva etc. Lishcho Tanago Akol ben Zachar for every male child v'lomar alop psukim to say psukim for it. Yesh limnoah minak. Yesh limno. It's it appropriate to stop the minak. Now, first of all, the mechaber said it's a minig. Mashin no hagim. It's a it's a minig that that dates back to the time of the Rashba and tshuvas, and uh, the name of the Ramban Nachmanides. You're talking 1300s. You're not talking. Uh, you're not talking uh, a late idea. You're talking basic Judaism. And it's a minig. And the, the Mechaber says it is a minig. He says, Yesh It's appropriate to stop the minig. It doesn't say you have to stop the minig. It doesn't say it's forbidden to do it. He, the Mechaber has many words he uses 
And you have to analyze what words he's using. If he says, Asur, it's forbidden, then it is forbidden. If it says it is yesh noya, in other words, it's appropriate to stop this minig, because he had a concern, as the Mishnah Brewer explains, that it, wa- it might have been used by people and considered to be already dar keyamori, a non-Jewish practice. In other words, the thought pattern involved behind it might have been switched from being a Jewish concept into something that was a, a demonic or was something that had the following the ways of the Goyim. So that, that it may have picked up something in, in, in over the years that made it inappropriate. But if he would say, if he held it was forbidden, he would say, Asur. He would say, uh, you know, it, it should be stuck. It, 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 it's, it's a, uh, it, it, lo, don't. He doesn't say don't. He says, yesh lim which means it'd be preferable to change the minute. Okay, that is what the Mechabah says. Now let's read what the Ramor wrote. The Ramor is Ramosha Isilis, same time period. He's the Ashkenazic Poisek for all our generations, right? And this is what he says. V'yesh meha ga'onim shakasvu. In the times of the ga'onim, there are those who wrote minigzeh, this particular minig, and gave it to us. V'chein kasvu also rabim and achronim. And many of the later rabbis, means down till the shulchan aruch, have written about it. V'chein nohogim b'chol medino se'ilu. Listen to those words. And that is the way we are accustomed in all our communities, all of our countries. The aimless and do not change what we do. It's an old custom. It's something that's tried and proven, and it's Jewish 150%. The kachtanigol zachar to take a male uh, chicken, the uh, zachar, and a female one for a girl. The lochin lemuberes, and they take for somebody who's pregnant. Base tanigolim two, one for the, the the mother and one for the expectant child. Ulai teleid zachar. Maybe it's going to be a boy. And boichrim betanigolim levonim, and you take white chickens, and he goes through a whole pattern of what is supposed to be done at this particular time. And listen to the words again. There's time for the gaonim. The gaonim is shortly after the Gemara was closed. It predates Rashi, predates Rambam, predates all these other people that we know. And this gaonim, we basically, every, all Yiddishkeit is coming from the gaonim and earlier. And the Rambam, when he writes, he writes that I hold this way, but the Gonim hold that way, and that's how we have to do it. So he is Mavatal Hizdas. He, he says, he signs up with the Gonim, and the Gonim said to do this minig. And, and many of the Achronim said to do it. And he says the Ramah, all of our communities do this. And don't change it. It's an old, established minig. Mr. Brewer talks about it at length. I don't have time to go into it. I'll just mention a little bit of what uh, he mentions about why you do it. He says, at the time when you're doing this, uh, this minig of the kaparis, 
יחשוב שכל מה שעושים לאוף הזה, הכל היה ראוי לבוא עליו. Whatever happens to this chicken is what should have happened to the person himself. And through his doing tshuva before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem will take away the gzera that could have happened to him. And, it, and, it would, and, and therefore, and what happens to the bird was a, is a sign of what would have happened to him if he, didn't, if he continued on his wrong ways. And so therefore, it's, a very, it's a sort of like a korban, and it's a, 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 that, that's come, that you do for something that a person did my mistake. And uh, then he goes into how it's slaughtered, when, da, 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 Okay. But people who are doing this are doing the right thing. That's clear from the Shulchan Aruch. But this little uh, piece that I got in the mail says, the practice of slaughtering a rooster must be stopped. Shulchan Aruch or didn't say that it, it was recommended to stop it, according to the Mechaber, and that the Ramor says not to. At least that much it should have said. It should have given you the opening. But it's not even that. It was bothers me is the way it said it in terms of the Mechaber. The Mechaber brought, this is the Minig. Noagim Lasos. And he would like to stop the practice. But he, it's a Minig. He doesn't say that you must stop it. He could have simply said, it's a Minig Tos, it's not appropriate. Uh, it got out of hand. He should have said asur. He should have used an, a stronger word. This is the shulchan aruch, and but the book, the piece of paper that I have here, the little, I mean, it's like a, it's like a postcard, says that the shulchan aruch says you have to stop it. Now here's what it goes and says: Gedolim throughout the ages have recognized that the suffering that this practice entails is beyond cruel. That's not what they were talking about. They're talking about Daki Amori. That it might be a non-Jewish custom. That might it might have morphed into something that's not a Jewish and not appropriate. Not that it's beyond cruel. Rav Yitzchak Kaduri is being quoted saying something, and uh, they make it sound like this is the basic part of Judaism. So then they go into using some terms to make it sound that this is what you have to do. Um, talking about the immeasurable suffering and the death of the chicken, which is exactly what the minig is all about. To, for you to see, now they didn't throw this chicken away, they took the chicken and gave it to somebody poor. Gave it to yeshiva, they gave it to poor people. They did, they did a mitzvah with it, but they but the slaughtering of it is not a, 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 some kind of wild, savage thing. It's shechita, making it edible to the person. But since you see the blood spurting out, so it has a, uh, an, in, uh, in the mind's eye, it becomes like a korban. And that's what the Mishnah says it should be. So they're missing the boat completely, of course. And then they call it Chaim, but it's not, not called Tzad Chaim. Because if you're doing something which is purposeful and you're taking this chicken and slaughtering it with shrita, that somebody should eat it, that's not Sabah Chaim. It's no different than your supper on your, your, your chicken for Shabbos. It's your, you shak the chicken in order to be able to eat it. That's not called Sabah Chaim. Absolutely not. Then they go to say, avoid health and safety issues inherent in using chickens. Here, they said something important. 
health and safety. That is an issue, and that is one of the things that has to be addressed in these uh, in, in, in these Kapara centers. And uh, that's something we, we talked about a lot when we were working on it. Uh, I don't know the current status at all. I don't visit these places anymore. But uh, you, uh, you could definitely uh, see what's going on. Um, I've spoken with a young man, happens to be a grandson, and he was helping out at one of the Kapara centers. And I asked him certain specific questions. And between you and I, I was not happy at what I heard. It wasn't about mistreating of the chickens uh, physically, but um, the question about how much they're fed, how much they drink, um, it's the last day, right? I don't think it's going to last more than a day. You usually put chickens out every day. But if it lasts two or three days, the, the, the crate that they were working on, uh, so maybe they have a two or three days. Were they fed? Did they get drink? It's very hot now. Are they getting drinks and, war- and food during that time or not? And um, I also found there was a number of, number of dead uh, chickens in the crate, which was not, happy, not something happy news for me. And so, yes, there are issues that these health and, um, and, and, and health and safety issues are very, very important, and they have to be properly addressed by the people who run these places. Uh, if it's done properly, you know, uh, then Baruch Hashem, you know, uh, obviously somebody en- ends up eating the chicken. Hopefully, everything is uh, is safe. Okay, um, make a kiddush Hashem by choosing chesed. In other words, choosing to give money instead of uh, doing the chickens. Okay, that's, uh, I don't know if it's called the Kiddush Hashem, uh, since it's uh, an accepted minig, has a very strong purpose. I don't think that it fits into that category at all. And then they said, for more information on how to help us, please email us at usecoinsforkaparis at gmail.com. So now you know about this little card and this little organization, which I wouldn't be surprised if no, no one Jewish in it. And they, they got somebody to put this thing together. And uh, obviously, they, you see, they manipulated the, t- the texts in order to satisfy their needs, which is very deceitful. Moving right along, I want to share with you a few things that are happening in the world of Kashrus. Um, there was a program some young man sent to me, one of my former Talmidim. Uh, he's not young anymore, but uh, he's, he's young to me. And uh, he sent a, a video of a program which I did not know about from the CRC in Chicago. It was a wonderful program. I watched it. Uh, unlike the OU one that we had this summer, it, which took uh, hours over, over uh, two day, uh, four days, maybe a total of eight hours, this is, I think, about a one-hour program, but it was very well done, very well done. I learned a lot from it, and I enjoyed it very much, and I, I hardly recommend it to you. Since you're going to have trouble getting it, you can email me, and I'll send you the link. Um, it's, you know, it's take me, uh, it's hard for you to write these th- numbers and letters down, so I'm not going to bother with you, but I do have the link. You can send me an email. Just say CRC video, and it's wonderful program. It includes Pas Yisrael, Bishi Yisrael. I especially liked what they were talking about, uh, the honey. One of the things that I liked very much, and uh, 
I liked, uh, I liked one thing I liked very much also was that uh, Rabbi Fishbane from the CRC was quoting Rabbi Belsky Zatzal, uh, even though Rabbi Belsky was the Poisek for the OU, one of the Poiskin for the OU. Uh, Rabbi Fishbane showed that he relied a lot on what Rabbi Belsky had to say, and that, that, that I enjoyed hearing that, that discussion. Very, very nice. And there was a lot of other little things, and, and there was some, the videos and the and the pictures that they show were extremely helpful in understanding the topics. So I hardly recommend it to you. Just send me an email at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. Just write on it, CRC video. And I'll send you the, the link. I, mean, I hope you'll enjoy it because I, I enjoyed it very much. Writing, moving right along, um, there's a mitzvah that you could do. It's also appropriate before Yom Kippur. And that is to give a tzedakah to a wonderful organization called Project Chodosh, C-H. O-D-O-S-H, Project Chadosh. You've heard about Yashar and Chadosh. There's only one organization, which was really one by one person, and uh, that, that organization um, is the only one that actually uh, investigates for the entire Jewish community the status of Yashar and Chadosh in all of its areas. Uh, they, they, they have uh, services where they answer your questions and they provide a booklet to you. Um, there's a, um, a, a course for the booklet. I forgot what it is now. I think it's like $25 for the year. Um, and uh, that itself is a wonderful thing. But in order to keep up this organization, at one time when... Rabbi Her- Mr. Herman, Rabbi Herman, Rabbi Herman was alive... He did it, and for however he got the money to run it, it didn't matter. He, he took care of it. Uh, after his passing, the family is taking care of it now, and they, and they reached a point where they can't do it alone anymore, and they do need some contributions. So the $25 a year is very nice if you have to pay for the booklets, but it costs them probably close to that. So uh, basically what they need is some donations, if you're interested in helping this Project Chodesh, which is the only independent, it's the only program providing Yodesh and Chodesh information to the whole world for nothing. I mean, basically, you can get their booklet free over the internet. And you could uh, ask them questions and keep them busy. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing they're doing. So here's the way to, co- to give them some a check. Make it out to Project Chodosh, C-H-O-D-O-S-H, and send it to Roskam, O-R, I'm sorry, R-O-S-S-K-A-M-M. Again, send it to Project Chodosh, care of Roskam, R-O-S-S-K-A-M-M, that's the name of the family, 963 Armstrong Avenue, Staten Island, New York, 10308. Um, And if you want to give a credit card number, you can do that at 646-278-1189. 
So again, if you want to send a check to Project Chodesh, uh, don't don't be worried if it's not as that much. Any every bit of helps. Every bit helps. So don't worry about it. Send them a check, a small check. Said, fine, you want a big check, send a big check. But just try to send something. Project, if you're interested in this topic at all, Project Chodesh, and you send it to Project Chodesh at care of Ross Camp, R-O-S-S-K-A-M-M, 963 Armstrong Avenue, Staten Island, New York, 10308, or call them at 646-278-1189 and leave your name and credit card number as, it, as requested, and, uh, and that'll it'll be, it'll be a, big, a big mitzvah that you're doing. Next point is, uh, is a, a new thing started. I really do not, not know anything about it, but I thought it was very interesting. KFI, Kosher Financial Institute. That means that this, they started a Kosher Financial Institute uh, to be able to uh, guide the Orthodox consumers to have a kosher bank directory of, of those institutions that are, are producing, are doing kosher uh, money transfers, money loans, etc. Otherwise, you're coming into the question of, in many places, ribbits. So that's a new thing, hot off the press, kosher financial institute. I don't really know the backing of it, and I don't know, you know what it entails. I just, was, I just thought it was interesting that we branched out Kashris into banking. Um, now, let, here's an interesting um, thing that came from Sam, who usually sends me something after every show, or every few shows, and he tells me about a problem that they're having, at least in some areas, and this one is in Canada, they're finding that some of their peppers, the jalapeno peppers, were infested with worms, and they tell you how to cut it lengthwise and wash it well inside and outside. Well, that kind of problem, Sam, is common in Israel and in other communities. High-quality produce that's hitting this, these shores over here, I have not seen it. Now, I don't use jalapeno, but the other peppers I use daily, and I don't see any worms in I have seen years ago, and it always could be that you could get inside a pepper, you could have a caterpillar or a worm inside, yes, because they could burrow in, that is a, a possibility, but the inside being uh, rotting away is only something you have in the lower quality produce or sat for a long time, and I don't see it. Next, I'm going on to some of the new problems that came up. This is uh, going to be in the October Cautious uh, Monthly. There's a, a company called Kroger, which everybody knows about because they have a million stores, and they have a product called Kickin Buffalo Dipper and Spread. Kickin, K-I-C-K-I-N apostrophe. Buffalo Dipper and Spread, which means it's, you dip in there, or you spread it on. It's a, I don't, this is the, what they call it. And it's a product that, does not, that has an OU on it, at least on some of the, on some of the uh, labels, and it's not authorized. Now, I wanted to check up to see what's going on with this product, what, you know, whether it's a really a concern or not. 
and I see that there's eggs there. Now, eggs work the following way. We all know about checking eggs for blood strupping. That's something that really is very, very remote today. And many of the people uh, buy liquid eggs. They don't take eggs and break them and crack them and put it in and crack another one and put it in. They're, they're, they're buying liquid eggs, which are produced in, in large quantities, and they're in a container, and they open the container up and throw it in, and that's, that's the eggs that they're using. They're making big quantities in the, in the factories, and this is the kind of product they're using, which is probably what they have at Kroger. Now, eggs that come that way, if they're not kosher certified, will include eggs from chickens that died. They take, they call them over eggs. They take them out of the over where the eggs are, and they take out of dead chickens and they mix them into this too. So when you have a non-certified eggs that come in these big vats, that is a big problem halakhically. That's not a blood strupping thing now. Now we're talking about nevela, eggs from a nevela, from a dead carcass. That is forbidden, 100% forbidden. So we definitely, uh, you know, anything that has eggs without a shkocha, that's a serious issue. I just that was, thought that was a little interesting. Then the, the OU came out with two products. One I was indirectly involved with, means that uh, the, the information came to me and I was sending uh, emails, etc. Uh, the, there are two Wegman products. One is called Wegman's Gluten-Free Brownies, which had an unauthorized OU. And the other one's called Wegman's Gluten-Free Cheese Tortellini. Cheese. Tortellini. Cheese, real non-kosher cheese, has an unauthorized OU. So even though there are a lot of Wegmans products that probably are OU certified, these two are not acceptable because they're not, they're not authorized. They're the Wegmans gluten-free brownies and Wegmans gluten-free cheese tortellini. So here we really, uh, and, uh, and I assume it's the cheese is dairy, and I, I don't know if the OU put, it, they, they put an OUD on it. <laughs> if they make a mistake, I don't know which, how many mistakes they make, right? So these are uh, a few of the, of the newer things, and there's another one also that's new, right off, hot off the press. Great value salt and vinegar potato chips from Walmart, great value. That's with the Walmart brand name. They're, they're OUD certified, but they forgot to put the D on, because obviously they are, have a dairy ingredients inside. So that's a little bit of a wrap-up on some of the items that are happening today. In the time remaining, let me discuss with you something that came up on a telephone call that I received. I was very much moved by this telephone call because it, it, it showed me uh, what kind of person uh, was asking the question and what it meant to him. It seems I got a call from somebody who was working at a certain, uh, either it's a restaurant or a caterer, and he asked me, whether the current, what's the current status about blueberries. So I told them that the situation hadn't changed, this is from our point of view, and that, that blueberries are an issue, um, as they have been for a number of years now. Um, there are three problems with blueberries. One is uh, the, um, uh, the, the small insect that is on the top of the blueberry near the crown, 
Most blueberries have a little crown. It's very, very tiny. It goes around the top of the blueberry. And uh, you can get uh, mites in, trapped in there. And, uh, but not all blueberries have uh, the crown. The ones that have the crown have the mite problem. Then you have scale, which is a scale disease on the outside. Uh, and that, that, that on the scale, it's a, uh, there's, a, there's a little bug li- li- living underneath the, the scale-like uh, adhesion. And that's something also that's visible. So it's not a, uh, uh, it's a possibility to check them. If you want to check it, I mean, I don't know if it takes very long. It doesn't take long. Or you'll sample it. That's something I can tell you. But uh, there, there are a number of the scales on blueberries. But the real problem, from my point of view, is the maggots that are inside blueberries. Because the only way to find them is to open up the, the blueberry. If you're going to open the blueberry and cut it into little pieces, you don't have a, you're not going to have any desire and pleasure in eating that. So, so many people don't eat blueberries right now. Other people read what the booklets say from the Kashmir's organization, and they do certain things, whatever they are. What I found interesting is, in the last few years, every, seems to be every year, I'm getting an announcement from some one or more conscious organizations, usually a few, that at the present time, blueberries are a big problem, and you should do A, B, C, or D, or sometimes that's how you would avoid it. So, to me, that's not, that's not a way to live. Why do we have to, you know, tell people uh, seasonally that there's a problem sometime or other. So uh, is everybody listening to everybody in Kashmir every day? And does everybody in Kashmir every day know exactly what's going on? What's happening in the industry is that you have at any time blueberries coming from different parts of the world. And uh, not just from one place. And you live in a city like New York or, or you know, something like that. You have you have uh, different sources coming into the city from who knows how many different kinds of places. So you have uh, blueberries from uh, up north and some from, from other countries and from here, from the south. Uh, you have all over the place you can have blueberries. And you have constantly changing them. So how could you know what's going on? In the good old days, and this you could see, it's a beautiful thing to see. There's a, if, you, if you look in the uh, dark Shuva from the Munkat Shirov, he has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tshuvas for him, responsible literature, discussed on every single topic in Shulchan Aruch. And when it comes to these laws in, in, in Simon Peiches, uh, in, in, in the Shulchan Aruch, in 84, in the Shulchan Aruch, and you'll see the, the discussion of the laws of uh, insects and, and vegetables, and you'll see how many tshuvas he has. And they all seem to be saying, well, we eat, uh, we ate the, the, the blueberries or the, these berries or those berries until somebody said they found the worms and then they stop. And this is every season, they're sort of stopping at a certain point. So when you read those two, you say, sure, the conscious organization will tell me when to stop. But life isn't the way it was in those days. That was a local thing in the forest. The berries that they had in the beginning of the season didn't have any insects. As they heated up and the bugs got into it, they got insects in there, so they stopped at a certain time. And the rabbi made an announcement in the shul, or their friend told them they saw the bugs, 
and that they themselves checked occasionally to find out if there's anything there. And that's how life went on. But that's not what it is today. It's coming from all over. So what's interesting about this call, and I see the time is already up, the interesting about this call was I asked the gentleman um, if he's the mashkiach. He said, no, I work here. Just, just work here. And he had a concern for the kashrus. Obviously he's from person, but he has the concern for the kashrus that he doesn't want something going on there that's not appropriate. And he had heard that there was an issue with the, with the blueberries. So I told him, I, and again, I don't know who I'm talking to. They don't identify themselves. So I told him, speak to the Harav HaMachshir. See what his, what his take is on it. And then you can decide for yourself or what, what tell other people. But let's hear what it is. Let, you know, find out from him what is the, his take on the blueberry issue. What is he doing to ensure these blueberries are kosher? And or does he is he you know, and you'll be able to get a feeling of what he thinks about it, and then at that point you could make it other maybe you call me again or you could ask somebody else and make your own decision what you think about it for yourself or for other people. But I was very impressed that a regular worker, whatever I don't know what his title is, in a, in, a, in a, such a facility, had a cautious concern and was making a call to the outside world, which is me. And that just just an interesting little uh, side. I thought uh, you might enjoy it. And with that, I'm going to wish everyone a gemar uh, Simatova and a good yomtov because we will not have a show until the week after Sukkot. Uh, I mean Sukkot and after Simchas Torah. So the uh, first Monday after that, in Mitzvah we will be rejoining. Everyone should enjoy a wonderful yomtov and a gemar Simatova. And until then, I'm wishing everyone a wonderful new year, a good good convention to you.